Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Disney Plus in season two of The Mandalorian. Witness the journey of The Mandalorian and the child as they face enemies, rally allies, and make their way through a dangerous galaxy in the tumultuous era after the collapse of the Galactic Empire. For your consideration in all categories, The Mandalorian is now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross blasted on to the film score scene in 2010 with David Fincher's social network, establishing a style for electronica, ambient, tonal beats, which just jived with Fincher's oeuvre. And they're back for their fourth film with the filmmaker, Netflix's Mank, about the screenwriter who wrote and took on the town with Citizen Kane, Herman Mankiewicz. It is a rollicking jazz score. We're here with Reznor and Ross on Crew Call. So Mank is, an, Mank is an amazing score. So much fun. Uh, and, and yet very different from what you've done with Fincher, you know, in terms of Gone Girl and, and Social Network and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Obviously, it speaks to the time, but tell me about that. You guys going, hey, we're going total jazz here. We're going, we're going total Bernard Herman. It's a story that's been documented before, but basically the journey of Mank begins in Hugo's for breakfast with Fincher, or a couple of weeks before when we got the script. And the script was a fairly dense read. I personally, for me, I read it, and then I sat on the computer for about four hours Googling people, and then read it again to kind of understand. It, 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 it isn't... When you read that first version of the script, it's not exactly how it plays on the screen. And it's hard to tell how it would play on the screen or how Fincher would approach it. Um, anyway, so we have this breakfast. We're talking about Mank and Fincher is, um, you know, like he's a true collaborator. And when we're talking about music and we're mentioning not not really sure from the script that isn't giving us a lot of clues he was he was he was open he was like i'm i'm not sure you know maybe it's solo piano maybe it's a big band maybe it's a bernard herman-esque orchestra considering that was his first actual film score came um and or maybe it's synthesizers, I don't know, I don't know. 
and uh, when we actually started on the on the kind of initial recording sessions, which are fairly broad always at the beginning, um, we just thought we decided against synthesizers, but we thought we'd just take a crack at kind of doing all three of the initial suggestions. And I'll add, if we were to sit down and start working on a Nine Inch Nails record, really the guiding factor is what's interesting to us right now, what feels inspiring. Like we might, we might talk about, it'd be fun to make a guitar bass drums record, or it might be fun to do this, but when we actually sit down and start doing it, sometimes you discover, yeah, that's, that's not quite as exciting as I thought it would be. And this other thing unexpectedly is, for whatever reason, um, is where your head is at, and that spark of uh, um, excitement is the thing that you really need to pay attention to. With scoring, uh, 10 years into it, uh, social network being the first 10 years ago, I think we're enjoying a bit of the confidence that comes from, hey, we can do this. You know, it, it's always hard, but we're, uh, we're probably less governed by fear, a little freer in terms of not quite as imprisoned by panic when a project first starts as normal, let's say. You know, what 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 we what we realize is the most important thing as composers is really to listen to the story and listen to what the director, how he's trying to tell that story, um, whether he verbally says it to you or if you have to read between the lines with clues as is often the case with David. Um, with David, you know he's deeply thought about it, and he may not articulate exactly what he's thinking, but he, you can pick up, he's not winging it. He's thought about this thing pretty deeply. So we always go with what does the story need and how can we, how can we embellish it with what's right for the story. So with Mank, like Attica said, he wasn't... Uh, real strict in his explanation or, or explicit, but as we started messing around with it, you know, w when you're told, I want this film to feel like it was found on the shelf in the archives from the forties and hasn't been seen or thought of since then, you know, it, it gives you a pretty good idea of what may or may not work. And we, and we considered playing against that, maybe put a, a very science fictiony non, non retro sounding score, but really, once we started tinkering around in that playground, using those instruments and, and that sensibility, it, it really then sparked the excitement in us. And it felt like you know, it, wasn't a, it wasn't us trying to be different. It was really, this is what seems right for the score, for the uh, film. And as we started playing it, then we got really excited to be able to, to kind of mess around on that canvas. I mean, that's what's great is, Look, I'm 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 a cinephile. I was destined to love this movie before I watched it. Um, but it's about a moody screenwriter who who takes on the town and it deals with the politics of the time and Upton Sinclair. And man, you made this really fun score for it. I mean, it's the joy of Hollywood, it's the joy of the era. Did you um had you had you messed around with jazz before? 
like in the past, like even pre Nine Inch Nails? And, and were, were any of the West Coast influences any inspiration on you? Not, not in any formal significant way. Um, it, it really was, you know, we had about around six months from when we had that breakfast and were formally kind of presented with the job to when composition would start. And we were also deep in the process of working on Soul with Pixar and we just finished Watchmen and we've gone through a string of kind of things one after another. So uh, we didn't drive home from that meeting and immediately start, but we had time to let it kind of gestate the idea seep in, in 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 the various ways that it does and part of the homework was to really start absorbing music of that era um studying some film scores of that era studying the role of music in films of that era if you are using that clue of i want it to feel like a film we found on the shelf you know that's something i'd never done and actually listening to see how loud music is where it plays you know with the limited uh frequency that you have in an older film, you know, in, in, the, in the smaller soundscape. It's, you know, mono, or in this case, we had left, center, right. But you didn't have the ability to put music around you and have that space. You had to get out of the way of the dialogue. You had to, you know, you, you weren't the featured thing necessarily. So we, we thought a lot about that. And again, <clears throat> I think if it had been, here's this idea, can you write some stuff tonight? We're going, to, we're going to shoot next week. I, I don't think we could have pulled that off. But having the time to kind of think about it, let it seep in, uh, go to bed listening to music of the era, era, listen to it in the car. Anytime you're listening to music, just let it seep in. Study sheet music of popular music of that day. Notice different chord progressions and harmonically how things would be different. Compare how I would write a chord change and then think, well, they would have, you know, in, in general, you'd start to insert these other uh things in there just kind of live live around with it for a while and when we started actually trying some things um we are or our own worst fiercest critics <laughs> and although we can lack objectivity we could tell hey this is exciting this feels genuinely exciting not just exciting because uh it's new to us. You know, I remember this is a little off subject, but a bit of color. I was working with a producer, Flood, who had worked with also with Depeche Mode, who are heroes of mine. And at the time, years and years ago, I think Depeche Mode was getting into guitars and real instruments. And I remember him saying something to the effect of, or I said, How is it? How is it? He goes, Well, they're really into it, but they've never had a guitar before. <laughs> You know, so it, I, what I took away from that, um, and I, I'm not meaning that to sound disparaging at all, was it's made me try to tune into sometimes when I'm really enthused about something, is it my own naivety or is it, my own, is it the novelty of something I haven't done? But to the outside world, if I'm putting this out for someone to listen to or if I'm, if I'm daring to put it in someone else's film, is it actually good or is it just me responding to the novelty of it being something different. So we, we, we tried our best to kind of be objective about that. But genuinely, it, it wasn't as terrifying as we 
initially thought it could be playing in a different field. It, it really came down to, I'm, I'm rambling here, but the secret to what we do, the way we look at it is if we can convey some emotional content, much like we would do if we are arranging a song or writing a lyric or trying to, you know, on, when I'm singing you a song, I'm acting those lyrics out and I'm trying to sell you that idea that I came up with or we came up with. If we replace that lyric with that script and the vision of, in this case, David Fincher, you know, the, how that character is supposed to feel, then the method of doing that, the instrumentation or the arrangement is just a tool. You know, it come, what matters is conveying that feeling of goosebumps and emotional connection in the rest of it. I'm, I'm not saying that it's not, uh, it doesn't require skill set in the arrangement side and the uh, technique and all that, but why I think we feel good about what we do is purely honing in on that. How does it make you feel aspect emotionally? When you were assembling it, writing it, did you did you guys just get get you know get a small quartet together and just kind of jam, or was it a real pen and paper thing where you're at the piano and you're pounding out the notes and 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 both of you are collaborating? The way we did this is we started with um, the the first phase was just to freeform compose 90-ish minutes of music about half or so was uh, orchestral inspired by Bernard Hermann-ish kind of approach when I say orchestral uh, the other half was more big band swingy we knew we knew the studio uh, segments needed the kind of up-tempo you know hustle bustle feel and well, how we did those was some of it was started on piano for melodic content. Some of it was, all of it then ended up being mocked up very thoroughly with uh, sampled orchestras. And so we could fully realize what we wanted it to sound like and orchestrate it the way we could present it without an excuse of, well, once it gets arranged, it'll sound, no. This is what we want it to sound like. And it, and it was, almost too good in the sense, not to sound arrogant, we, we all started to suffer from demo-itis as the film progressed because the process in which we accomplished this was demo everything up where, you know, the astute listener would know it's not, it's not a performed orchestra, but it was sampled in a way that it sounded pretty legit cut all that to the film, have that go through several, sometimes hundreds of revisions per scene of getting that exactly right. Uh, then we use Conrad Pope for orchestral arrangements, had him translate that, uh, arrange it for a proper orchestra, get his demos, which were rougher, but were the actual articulation of what was gonna be performed had that go through a couple revisions. When I say go through, submitted to David, and you know, things change back and forth. Then it's time to record, but of course we're in the midst of a pandemic and nobody can be in a room together. So we had the added complication, logistical complication of uh, sending out 
the proper mics of the era to kind of stack the deck to set us up to succeed uh, with a little instruction kit in a, in a sterile case that would go around from house to house and assemble each individual performance, which was done in most people's homes, into a giant Pro Tools session where everything got put back together. And then miraculously, when you hit play, it sounded like 70 people playing together. Wow. So everything was recorded separate because of the pandemic? Yes. All the instruments? Yes. Yeah. So everyone, every single part. Wow. Uh, so like so someone in Burbank? Wow. Just yeah. all over. Wow. No, there, no, no. When we did, when we were in the recording, it was the, the most locked down period of Los Angeles. There were, there were, the only benefit was, uh, that all the great musicians were available because no one had any work. So that was good, but it was certainly a challenge in terms of what Trent just described. Every single part recorded separately. Wow. By the person in their, you know, bedroom or their bathroom or their whatever. How many, how big, how big of a piece, what, what did your... It would go pretty wide. I mean, there'd be hundreds of tracks on some. But like the orchestra, the orchestra size, it would go if from. It, if, it, if it were an orchestra, there would, some the biggest pieces were around 70 piece. But because of the way it had to be recorded, often say the violinist might play four chairs, one person would play each part. So we wouldn't have, so I forget how many actual people were involved. But the, through multi-tracking, you know, um, certain instruments, one performer would play first chair, second chair, parts, etc. Um, and not all the orchestral pieces were 70, but I think the largest, the, the biggest um, pieces like the intro piece were right around, would have been 70 had we done it in a room with four people. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Disney Plus and season two of The Mandalorian. Witness the journey of The Mandalorian and the child as they face enemies, rally allies, and make their way through a dangerous galaxy in the tumultuous era after the collapse of the Galactic Empire. For your consideration in all categories, The Mandalorian is now streaming only on Disney Plus. Tell me about your shorthand with Fincher. Correct me if I'm wrong. You met him when he was directing a Nine Inch Nails video. D does your working relationship go back that far? Uh, we, I forget how we first met. I, I tend to think, uh, you know, in the 90s, Mark Romanek, Fincher, we're all kind of a, of a camp. And I think when we were doing the Closer video, I think David was around. We, we knew of him and he was somebody that we, we certainly would like to have worked with as a video director back then, um, back when there were budgets and it was a big deal. Um, we didn't until on the With Teeth album, he did a video for Only. But prior to that, he had used um, a version of Closer as the opening credits for Seven, um, which we had not written for that, but worked perfectly as that opening crawl which i think had a huge impact on film moving forward from there i thought that i was super happy that, that that made it in there but um it was it 
was a surprise when the phone was ringing, hey, would you score social network? You know, because we, we hadn't pursued that. Scoring film was something that I was interested in, but hadn't had any concrete path towards trying to execute. So, uh, you know, I was a fan of Fincher's filmmaking by that point, and uh, grateful that he was persistent. <laughs> You know something, so when I would talk to, to like motion picture studio music department executives, and I would be like, oh my God, it would be so cool if, say, the Black Eyed Peas did the score to this, that hypothetically, you know, they would, they would calm me down and say, hey, listen, listen, as wonderful as, as it sounds, he says, sometimes, you know, rock musicians and pop musicians, they have no... They don't have the patience for film scoring. They don't. They don't have the patience for all the doing all these cues and delivering it on time. How did you find it? Was it? You said you were interested in it, but it. You know, for some, you know, for some making the transition from you know being a recording artist to film scoring. I don't know. It's it's a jump for some. Well, I'll start. I, I think we we work hard. You know, our, our culture and our studio and our work ethic is one of, we put the time in because we, we, we're not perfectionists, but we are in pursuit of excellence, you know, and I find that often it takes time to, that's not to say laboring over every single thing, but you know, taking it seriously and carving out time where you can focus on what you're doing. And that's, that's been part of how we've worked since I've known Atticus. And I don't know what it's like in the studio for the Rolling Stones. It sounds like it might be fun, you know, and a party vibe. And uh, But that's, that's not really what it's like for us. You know, we're, we're having fun, but it, it's, it's uh, part of the fun is sweating to get it, to get it through it, you know, it's part of what we do. So, the challenge for us wasn't so much the work side of it, the pace side of it, the endless revision side of it. Um, because the first film we did, Social Network, we, we didn't have a music editor or anything. So every time the picture would come back, hey, I cut two frames out of this one scene, that was, okay, we have to go re-record it. And it's just enough that that melody doesn't work now, so let's go. <laughs> we, we, we learned eventually that, oh, that's what a music editor does. That, that, could, that could be good to have that maybe. You know, it took us a couple more films before we learned that lesson. But um, the, I think what we had gotten into instrumentally with the Ghost Records was exploring mood intention and emotion outside the context of a song structure and i think that ghost record that we put out was something that uh responded with resonated with fincher and i i think that's what he thought if these guys could focus that kind of energy into filmmaking it's what i'm looking for i'm guessing he never come out and said that but i'm assuming that must have played a role so for us, it was really just getting over the different medium, learning the different language and the, and the how, how it works, you know, the, uh, how, how things get revised, um, 
working around working in support to something also not being in control of anything at the end not being not being the boss um collaborating you know those were the things that proved to be uh that we had, we had to understand how to do how to, how to figure out and i'll just add a couple of um i mean ghosts Fincher had actually tempted some of that into social network. But going back to what Trent originally mentioned, um, it's, it's, it's about creating an emotional story and coming at that as an artist. Um, and I don't mean that with any pomposity. But um, I think there is a section of uh, composers who may look at it more as an artisan endeavor, and that there's no disrespect about that. But, you know, that for us, it's always been an artistic pursuit in service of the film, but also in the journey of learning about music. I mean, to, you know, there's no end to that journey and everything that we do feeds into the next thing that we do. And I think that the idea, you know, like any painter that I know or any writer that I know, if I ask them about, well, how do you, you know, how does inspiration work for you? It's always the same. It's I get up and I start painting, or I get up and I start writing. And I think for us, it's very much been about, we work 11 to seven, five days a week. And it's, you know, it's not to do with uh, calling up, hey, I feel particularly inspired today or not inspired. It's more through that process, I think, inspiration becomes unavoidable because because it's just your life and you know that's personally what I've always wanted is music to be a part of my life or creating it um you know art that's always what I've been interested in and I think that the we've been lucky enough and particularly if you're talking about the relationship with Fincher where this idea of art music emotional expression, great filmmaking, they all collide in a way um, that's pretty unique, I think. And, and like you said, when we first started in this 10-year um, relationship, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, and it's amazing to think that Mank is 10 years after Social Network. I think when you play them next door to each other, on one side, they sound radically different, but there's an aesthetic, at least to my ear, an emotionality that, that, that combines them. Um, so once I asked um, Danny Elfman, I said, Would, will Oingo Boingo ever get back together again? And he said, absolutely not. My touring days are done. I went deaf in my right ear. I don't know if it was right or his left, but he says he went deaf in one of his ears. Will will nine inch nails rise again, or 
or are you are you in are you in this film scoring or both of you in this film scoring uh, streak? No, it's it's we we're supposed to be on tour this past fall. You know, we we just finished the tour two years ago. Um, we are about to start on a non-shales record, which we're excited about. You know, what, what we found is having the uh, the luxury of being able to work and film is a great uh, inspiration factory. You know, like take on a project that lasts six months or a year, go on an adventure, being in a forced uh, collaboration with a team of people. When you finish that, we found, hey man, now I can't wait to go do this other thing. Maybe because now we can be the boss. You know, we can fuck it up on our own now instead of waiting for someone else to fuck something up. You know, but it, I had found over the years, you know, as great as it is to be in a band and kind of in control of your own destinies, artistic destiny, I should say, um, you could find yourself reminding yourself at what it would what a privilege that is, you know, and having to say, you know, my dream when I was in my early twenties was to not have to have a job so I could sit in a room with music stuff and make music. Wouldn't that be great if that could be my job? And then uh, having it be your job after years, sometimes you have to remind yourself, Hey, this is pretty fucking great. You know, to be able to do this and, Working in film has, has taken us down these little adventures where um, it's been hard work and it hasn't all been fun, <laughs> but it, it's got us in situations that I, I doubt we would have been in um, had we not done it. And it, it's taught us an incredible amount. It's taught us how much we don't know. And um, it's, it's great to be able to, harness the power of music and witness that in another medium and get to play in that field and play with incredibly talented, interesting people, you know, and, and then go back to your day job. So that, that's, they balance each other out for now. We'll see how long that lasts. So out of the gate, you do social network and you win the Oscar for best, uh, for best original score. How does that, how does that impact you? Does it set the bar so high where you're like, oh my God, what the hell do we do now? Or is it just, nah, just keep doing what we're doing. Keep trucking. Is it, uh, but that, to have that happen, that's, I mean, there are some composers that will go 20 years, decades without ever winning. And you guys, boom, you, you, you made an impact. Um, how do you how do you look back on Oscar night? Well, I'll start. We had no. When I say it never even entered our minds as something we'd even think about. That that's what it was when we were working on Social Network. We we were doing that film because we were excited to try, and it was ended up being really fun to work on and. It was like a, an adrenaline rush. It was like running as fast as you can to keep up with people, but you were keeping up, but you had to keep, like I enjoy technical trail mountain biking because I have to pay attention every second and I can't daydream or I'll fall on your ass and break your collarbone. 
it felt like that working on social network in a way, you know, we had to really keep up. And when the film finished pre-awards, we felt real proud of what we had been able to pull off and help contribute to the film. It just felt great. Then when award season kicked in and suddenly people are looking at the film and our work at it, you know, it, it was surreal and didn't feel real at the time. And when you see how much kind of effort and a, a Grammy feels like someone in a back room needs a broadcast, so give it to these guys. Our experience with the Academy Awards was a lot of people thinking about the details and the specifics and to, to kind of witness that and all the, we had never campaigned or attended any of those events and to kind of see how seriously everybody takes it was pretty, pretty mind blowing. Then to win it, you know, it felt like a validation. However, it's just a thing. And I suspect if there's anybody that's writing film scores and treating it like the Olympics where you have to get the prize and that's why you're doing it, you're setting yourself up for a world of pain. You know, We looked at it like we're, we're trying to do cool stuff and it's nice when it's recognized, but even when it's not, if you know, if you know you did good work, that, that's why you're doing it. You know, and I'm, and I'm not saying that to kind of, that's just how we feel about it. You know, it, it's, it, we're super grateful that we won that. It felt nice. It's on my shelf, you know, uh, it, it didn't fix me as a human being. <laughs> it did, didn't make me feel complete, you know, more than the next day. I kind of felt like the same guy that's still got issues. It's, I'm grateful for it. I, and I appreciate the recognition from peers and, and that meant a lot, but, um, it, why we do this now is really just to try to try to gain the experience of working with different people and hopefully getting smarter and being challenged and keeping things interesting and being able to take some of the fabric of what we learned into the next thing and you know feel like we're living life. Atticus is going to have a he's going to have a real philosophical take now. No, I'm not. I'm, I don't have anything to add. Like, or, or, I agree with everything Trent said, and but it's it's entertaining looking back on it because we really didn't have a fucking clue about what was going on, and uh, <laughs> you know, like you need a suit, a suit jacket. What you know, like even the beginning of it and talking this kind of thing like I can do this now without my heart help you know I hated talking to people back then and um especially about work that we've done or whatever but that you know I just remember like Trent said it, it nothing changes but in the midst of it there were some amusing experiences <laughs> and uh you know, the Golden Globe was a night, the rarest night where it felt like we won and we were able to enjoy the win for that, be in the moment for it. The Oscars was 
which is such a nerve-wracking, terrifying experience. Uh, it was. And then when your name, <laughs> when your name's called, a you can't believe it. You can't even believe you're there in the first place. But then it's like, man, I I really hope I don't fall over on the stairs, you know, or do something embarrassing. And we had it was presented to us by uh, Hugh Jackson and whatever uh, you know. I can't remember her name right now, but some, another giant basically. They're both like nine feet tall, and then there's it was just a weird. <laughs> Anyway, like Trent said, it doesn't change anything. You know, like more recently, I really wanted Watchmen to win the Emmys because I really felt, you know, much like I did about Social Network, much like I have about, you know, it's, it, things don't ever, I'm not conscious normally of that kind of thing, but with Watchmen I was because I felt like what Damon did was so important and so daring and so of the moment, you know, it, it, I, I was really happy that the show was recognized and I was really happy that we won as well because that was something that we worked fucking hard at. Brent Reznor and Atticus Ross, the composers of Netflix's Mank, now streaming. Thank you for joining us on Crew Call. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. <laughs>